Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate on study the Word today, and get our focus off of things that happened yesterday and things that are going to happen this afternoon and the beautiful weather outside, and just uh, focus on the uh, teaching of the Word this morning. I have a few moments of silent prayer for you to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together today to study your word. We thank you for what you have revealed to us. We thank you for the way that you have given us a scripture that is all-sufficient, that there is no issue in life, no problem we face, no challenge we must overcome, that we do not have guidance from your word, that the, there is a divine framework of thought provided in Revelation so that we can understand the issues in life and we can properly address them, whatever they may be. Father, we thank you for uh, this nation in which we live, for the fact that we have the freedoms that we do. We continue to pray for our nation and during this time of war, the war on terrorism, that you would guide and direct our leaders, that you would secure our borders, that you would give us uh, security in our country that the plots, the plans of uh, those who would seek to destroy us would be foiled, that you would give wisdom and skill to uh, security forces to find out the information they need, and above all, give guidance and direction to our uh, civilian as well as military leaders. Father, we pray that also that you would challenge us as we study your word as a church, a body of believers. We remember that as goes the nation, so goes, or as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And that one of the most important things that we can do for our nation is to study your word and apply it consistently in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, almost two years ago, we started, or maybe it was even longer than that, we started our study of 1 Corinthians in this morning. We should finish 1 Corinthians. And this has been a lengthy study. And Corinthians, I think, is one of the most important books to study in the Scripture 
because it addresses problems, the problems that every one of us faces. Uh, every one of us struggles with, with the sin nature, and at Corinth, it's so refreshing to see this church from one perspective. That's the perspective of grace, because they have every kind of problem and every sort of screwed up uh, believer there could possibly be. They were committing all kinds of sins. And there's a comfort there for all of us because we know that too often we all fall prey to our own sin nature. And yet the comfort from this is that no matter how much we sin, no matter how much we fail, no matter how badly we mess up in our spiritual life, if we're still alive, God still has a plan for us. And that there is still a basis for recovery and a basis for advancing to spiritual maturity. Because if the Corinthians could straighten out their mess and move forward, and if that was a real possibility, then that's true for us. So no matter how much we may have failed in life, there's always that opportunity to recover and move forward afterwards. As we've gone through this this epistle, we have seen that they have all kinds of problems with arrogance. They have divisiveness. They've gotten involved in... Uh, many personality cults within the congregation wrapping themselves up with first one man, then another man, dividing up, one saying, I'm a follower of Paul, another, I'm a follower of an Apollos, another, I'm a follower of Peter, and then the real spiritual one said they were followers of Jesus. And we have the same thing in the church today. You have people who confuse the man with the message. And the issue is always the message. It's always doctrine. It's always truth. It's not the personality of the individual who communicates the truth. You know, there are some men who have wonderful personalities in the pulpit, and they're great fun to listen to, and there are others that don't have great personalities in the pulpit, but they have uh, good things, important things to say as well. It's not the personality, it's the message, and that's what the focus must always be. And as uh, Paul had to straighten out that problem. He also had to straighten out the core issue was that had to do with cultural issues. And we saw that in our study that culture is just a uh, sort of a modern antiseptic term for talking about what the Bible calls worldview or worldliness, let's say. And, and cosmic thinking always produces certain kinds of culture. And different emphasis in cosmic thought produce different changes. So you have Asian cultures, you have African cultures, you have tribal cultures, you have, uh, you have met, uh, urban cultures, you have Western cultures. But what, what makes a culture the way it is are the fundamental religious beliefs. Everything in a culture ultimately traces down to the religious beliefs held in that culture, what, how they understand ultimate reality. And how you understand ultimate reality, which is your view of God, angels, etern- eternality, salvation, affects your view of knowledge. How do you know what you know? And how do you come to know truth? And you come to know truth in one of four ways, as we've seen. You either know it through the use of human experience alone, where man thinks that he can come to a knowledge of ultimate reality just on the basis of his own his own experiences. Or it's through reason, that man on the basis of his own ability to reason and use of logic can get him to ultimate reality. Or 
He, he rejects that, which often has happened in history. Then he goes to mysticism. And mysticism is always sort of the dregs of cultural development. When you hit mysticism, you're, you've hit the bottom. And that's where we are in, in Western civilization today. We've become a mystical culture. We've gone through those various uh, stages through empiricism, rationalism, and, and they don't get you there. You can't get hope. You can't get meaning in life. Uh, through rationalism and empiricism, ultimate, ultimately all human philosophies end up in bankruptcy. There's always a failure there because it, they exclude revelation. They exclude God. Now, they may talk about God. You may have philosophical systems that have religious verbiage, but what they've done is they have taken God and inserted things that they like from the Bible or from other religions into the system where there, where it maintains a level of, of comfort. But rather than starting from the Scripture and the Scripture alone and then building out from there, and this happens in every arena of life, whether you're talking about politics or law, uh, ethics, whether you're talking about other other branches of intellection. And so the same thing was true with the, with the Corinthians, but they were operating on the basis of what they had learned in their culture from Greek philosophy. And Greek history went through the same stages. They went through uh, <clears throat> rationalism, empiricism, skepticism, and then mysticism. And the Corinthians were enmeshed in mysticism. And Western civilization probably would have ground to a halt not long after this if it hadn't been for Christianity. Christianity alone is the answer to mysticism. Mysticism is the deterioration in, in every culture the more mystical you become, the more society fragments, because in mysticism, everybody becomes their own source of truth, that, quote, inner light. And it's pure subjectivism. You end up in the kind of garbage we studied in, in Judges, that every man becomes his own authority. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes, because he's following his, this inner light, this intuitive insight into ultimate meaning. And the Corinthians had become that way, and modern uh, Western civilization has entered into a mystical period once again with the New Age movement and the absorption of Eastern religions. And so we have the same problem facing Christians today as Christians in the early church. We're surrounded by a culture that is radically opposed to what the Bible teaches because their ultimate view of reality is different, and their view of how you know this reality is different, and then that leads to different value systems. And ultimately, everybody has to have, has to agree on certain values as the same. But just because you have points of apparent agreement doesn't mean you got there the same way. And that makes all the, it's not that you, that you, you can find an unbeliever who says, yes, murder's awful. Yeah, well, why do they say murder's awful? Well, it's disruptive, it's, uh, they have various pragmatic reasons for it. But if you're a believer, the reason it's terrible is because you've stolen a man's life, but ultimately because you have destroyed an individual who was created uh, by God in the image of God. And so that changes. You, you may both agree that murder is wrong, but as a Christian, why it's wrong is different from the reasoning for a non-Christian. So therefore, your wrong is radically different from that person's wrong. And that's why circumstances can ultimately change, and his view of murder begins to waffle. 
and he ultimately can, can rationalize the taking of life under certain circumstances because the foundation for his reasoning is, is pragmatic. So when you're a Bible-believing Christian, your thinking is going to be 180 degrees opposite the thinking of the culture around you unless you happen to have lived in a historical period where the culture around you has been seriously impacted by Christianity, biblical Christianity, not the kind of uh, tradition, not the kind of philosophical, ritualistic Christianity that dominated the Middle Ages. And there have been a few times in history where there have been uh, high water marks where Christianity has really had a significant impact. And you can think about some of the times under the Puritans in England and in America. Now, I'm not saying that they had a heaven on earth. They certainly didn't. But they hit a high water mark, maybe... Maybe, and I'm not, I'm not real optimistic. I think that under some of these groups and in some other areas, uh, <clears throat> in times in history, some, some of the times in the co- a period of time in the American colonies and, and some period in some places in the 19th century in, in America, you had uh, a larger than average impact of Christianity. But I never think it's more than maybe 10% or 20%. It's not that great. But you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to change the whole. Uh, just as it doesn't take much leaven to leaven a whole lump. It doesn't take a whole whole large number of Christians and Christian thinking to influence the whole culture in the right direction. Uh, That critical mass doesn't have to be very big. It doesn't have to be 50% or 70% or 80%. But you have that. You have to recognize that as Bible-believing Christians, there's always going to be this head-on confrontation with the culture around you. And the more pagan the culture becomes, the more pronounced that antagonism is going to be in those conflicts. And the more pronounced you're going to have those conflicts in the workplace. If you are a Bible-believing Christian, that doesn't mean you walk around being judgmental of other people. But if you're in a work environment today with all of the pressures from multicultural legislation for the workplace and everything else and, and, and rights to homosexuals and all this other stuff, you have to do a lot of thinking in terms of where you work and the environment you're in because there are things that are coming that will come down in your work environment from management that is that will seriously stress your commitment to biblical truth. I remember this was this was 15 years ago. A man in my church was an employee of Southwestern Bell, and they had to go through these uh, these New Age seminars that was mandated for every employee. And there are other types of seminars like that that are mandated by employees of companies, and you have to go through that. And some places, it's it you you go through that, and everybody thinks it's ridiculous, and they just punch the clock and go on and act like it never happened. And other places. It impacts people who are your superiors, and they try to implement that kind of stuff. And if you're a Christian and you don't feel the tension with that, and you don't realize that you can't be consistent and live in that live and work in that kind of environment without it ultimately impacting your your values and your your uh, uh, Christian worldview, then you're fooling yourself. And these are things that you have to think about, and they're not easy. And the solutions are not always easy. This is the situation the Corinthians were in because they did not go through that process 
of changing the way they thought. They were still thinking like the pagans around them, and this was why they kept coming up with the problems they had. But once you go through that truly biblical uh, changing of your thinking, renovating of your thinking, then you feel that tension, you see that tension more and more with the culture around you. So Paul comes to the conclusion in verse 13, and in this conclusion he gives a number of imperatives. Imperatives are mandates that basically define for us the parameters of the Christian life. You could draw this as a circle. If you think about the the New Testament, there are a vast number of, of uh, positive mandates and negative prohibitions. And if you were to circumscribe these, and I'll draw a series of X's here, the X's are going to be positive mandates to do certain things, such as we find in our uh, first verse. Watch, stand fast, be brave, be strong, let everything be done in love. Five mandates. Okay, that those are positive commands. You have other positive commands in Scripture, such as uh, pray without ceasing. And in other passages, you have negatives. Uh, not to... Uh, be bitter, uh, not to harbor uh, mental attitude sins, not to be jealous, not to be involved in uh, overt sins, not to be involved in sins of the tongue. So we'll use why here to define the negatives. And see, you have this circle that's defined by your by your mandates. That sets the standard for how the member of the royal family of God lives his life. This is the code of conduct for uh, royal aristocracy, and that's what we are as believers. We've been adopted into the royal family of God. And so this describes the spiritual life of the believer. And as long as we are operating within that pattern, within that, those mandates, then we're also walking by the Spirit abiding in Christ and we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those dynamics are all taking place. But whenever we disobey any of those mandates, we're out. We're no longer walking by the Holy Spirit or walking in the light. We're out here walking in darkness. We are operating on the basis of the sin nature. And the Holy Spirit is being uh, grieved and quenched. And the only way back in is through 1 John 1.9. So Paul has gone through all of this, all of these various mandates in Corinthians, and now he summarizes it. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong. That first mandate is a present active imperative. In fact, all of these are present active, are present imperatives, which means these are to characterize your life as a believer. This is a mandate to do this over and over and over again. Standard operating procedure. These are the habit patterns that should characterize every believer's life. These are the habits that should characterize your life when you are walking by the Spirit. And this first command is from the Greek uh, verb gregoreo, where we get our name Gregory. Uh, Gregoreo. And it emphasizes the ongoing action of staying awake, 
or being vigilant. It's translated uh, watch in the New King James. It's translated be on the alert in the New American Standard. And it has the idea of spiritual vigilance, watching over your spiritual life, being aware of the areas in which you easily succumb to sin and temptation, and avoiding that if possible. Being vigilant over your the basic disciplines that you should be cultivating in your spiritual life, such as prayer, memorizing scripture, reading through the Bible once a year, uh, listening to doctrine on a daily basis, having that time set aside, being able to plan your day, manage your time. It's interesting that the verse just prior to the mandate to be filled with the Spirit is a verse where we're told to redeem the time. Time management's important. We're to, the Scripture says, we're, uh, Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 9, that we run the race, but not aimlessly. See, too many Christians just kind of ramble through their Christian life as whatever happens. But Paul says, no, you, you need to plan things. You need, you're not going to accomplish what you don't plan. You just bounce your way through the Christian life and hope that somehow everything's going to work out okay. So the first mandate here for the uh, Corinthians is to be vigilant in their Christian life. This word's used about 22 times in the New Testament, and it's almost every time it has that idea of warning the believer to be watchful in his spiritual life. Jesus used it in this sense with the apostles the night before he went to the cross when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had a task, a specific task at that time, and he told them to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Even though this was a statement made in a specific situation, it has broader application and that is that we have to always struggle with the sin nature. The sin nature makes us weak. We may be uh, willing, we may desire to live for the Lord, but too easily we succumb to the temptation of the sin nature. That was Paul, what Paul recognized in Romans 7. We don't do the things we know we ought to do, and we keep doing the things that we don't want to do. And that's the struggle in the Christian life. But thanks be to God that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But he has given us the Holy Spirit to give us the power to overcome these things. So we are to watch and pray. However, the the, uh, Corinthians, as we've seen, were just the opposite. They were spiritually asleep. They weren't alert. They were dull. They were enthralled with human viewpoint philosophy. They were dominated in their thinking by the uh, modern world, the philosophical concepts of the Greeks and the value system and ethics promoted by Aristotle and Plato. And we have the same thing today. We have Christians who are basically walking through life asleep. They don't want to be challenged with learning how to think, which they know will put them at odds with the culture around them. And there's people who don't like it. They don't want that confrontation. They don't, they don't want to feel, uh, go through life feeling uncomfortable and recognizing that, that their values are going to set them apart from their family, from their friends, that they, they're going to look like a really odd duck among, uh, their peers at work because of the way they think. And so they, 
they just would rather float through life and compromise with psychology and compromise with evolution, compromise with moral relativism, go along with postmodernism and deconstructionism, all for the sake of avoiding that kind of conflict. This is what had happened with the Corinthians. They substituted human viewpoint wisdom for a knowledge of God's Word in the first chapter. As a result, they were divisive. They had immorality that they uh, accepted and they validated within the congregation. And there's nothing uh, that is more harmful than, for, for the Christian life than to start validating uh, immorality in your own life and accepting it and enabling it, as it were. Because as you start turning your your uh, eye to it and saying, well, they'll, they'll take care of it. We're not, I'm not going to say anything or I'm not going to say anything in my own life and using grace to sort of uh, justify it. Before long, you, you don't understand how destructive those things are in your own spiritual life. They had also developed very uh, confused ideas about celibacy and marriage that were creating problems within the marriages and the families. They were self-indulgent. That went right along with their uh, arrogance. They became uh, indifferent and uh, callous to the uh, problems that others were having and dealing with the doubtful things. They abused their spiritual gifts. They had all kinds of problems because of their fundamental compromise. So they weren't on the alert. They were spiritually asleep because of their carnality. Other passages in Scripture that emphasizes being alert, for example, you have Acts 10, 30, and 31, where the leaders, and Paul tells the leaders of the church to, that they need to be alert for those who come in and teach false doctrine. In Matthew 24, 42, and 43, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, we're told that we're to be alert for Christ's coming because it is imminent. It can be at any moment, so we need to be ready. Colossians 4, 2. We're to be alert in prayer. Continue earnestly in prayer, Paul says, being vigilant. That's that same word, Gregoreo, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We need to be watchful for the assaults of Satan in spiritual warfare. First Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant. Same word. Be alert because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to be alert in our spiritual life, be ready for the return of Christ because that is our motivation to please Him and to be ready at His coming. We're also promised that there's a blessing for being alert. Revelation 16:15. Behold, I'm coming as a thief, Jesus says. Blessed is he who watches. And keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The idea there is keeping his garments, is, is keeping in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, growing, advancing. Uh, lest he walk naked and see his shame, that's the believer who is carnal and out of fellowship and exposed spiritually. So the first mandate is to be on the alert. The second mandate is to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm in the faith. This is the... Um, Greek verb histemi. The Greek verb histemi. 
H-I-S-T-E-M-I. And it means to stand firm. It's a verb that is used for taking up a defensive posture in spiritual warfare. You're not to attack the devil. You're to take your stand on Scripture. Again, the present imperative emphasizes this is to be the ongoing uh, characteristic in the believer's life. This idea of standing firm is emphasized many different places in the Scripture. For example, Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. In other words, don't get caught up in carnality and reversionism. Take your stand in the Lord. First uh, Thessalonians 3.8, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Second Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Now, some people think tradition is wrong. Well, tradition, for tradition's sake, is wrong. But when you have a tradition that's based on doctrine, then you hold on to it and you keep it. You don't keep changing something just for the sake of change. This is what's happened in the contemporary uh, worship movement in contemporary Christianity is you get all these baby boomers that have come up and they want something different to be different. And they don't understand that in the process they're overthrowing the solid doctrinal foundation that they inherited. Now Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, that we're to stand firm in the faith. And that has the idea of standing firm in, in doctrine. So when we talk about the word faith with the definite article, it has to do with a specific set of beliefs. It is what we believe, not the act of believing, but what we believe. And we're to stand fast in the faith. For example, in Jude 3, we'll read that this is the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul talked about the gospel which I proclaim to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. This is the fight that is the good fight of faith in 1 Timothy 6.12. We are to take our stand in the truth of God's word. Then the next command in verse 13 is to be brave. It is to, literally, it is to, uh, it is Andre Zeste. Uh, and it has the idea of acting like a man, like a mature individual, not like a girly man. <laughs> I've just been waiting to use that. <laughs> act like a mature believer. Not act like some wimp, and that's what most evangelicals are today, is they're just, they're intellectual and spiritual wimps because they don't know the scripture. They don't have it in their soul. They've compromised with the culture around them. They don't realize that all this praise and worship and contemporary Christian, Christian growth, church growth stuff is compromised with the world. They have failed to understand that when you do the right thing the wrong way, it's still wrong. And just because you you want to win a lot of people to Christ and see a lot of people saved doesn't justify you in adopting uh, the world's methodologies of, of uh, salesmanship to try to uh, manipulate people into some sort of 
religious experience or religious conversion. What always happens when you do that is the doctrinal content gets watered down because you compromise the truth of Scripture so it doesn't come across as offensive to the unbeliever. And if somebody is really positive, you don't need to back off of anything that the Bible says. You just make it clear. If they're positive, they will respond to the gospel. Maybe not today. Maybe they'll have to think about it for a while. But don't destroy the gospel by diluting it and by backing away from various claims of Scripture. You take your stand, and the Holy Spirit will utilize that. So Paul says to be to watch, to stand fast in the faith, to act like mature men. Mature, grow up, quit acting like babies. And that was exactly the problem in Corinth. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said that he had to continue to speak to them as carnal, as babes. And it's not, it's not uh, the idea that they were uh, babes brephos, which means spiritual you know, brand new spiritual babies, but it was the word napios, which indicated an, uh, uh, um, someone who had been born for a while, indicated somebody who had some chronological age in their spiritual life, but they were still acting like a baby. This, it, it was an insulting term. They should have been mature. They had the knowledge to be mature. They had been taught well, but they refused to grow up because they were living in carnality. So he summarizes that. They need to grow up and act with maturity. And then fourth, they are to be strong. They are to be strong. This is the uh, Greek verb, kratio, uh, to be strong. Kratio, actually. Looks like this. It's K-R-A-T-A-I-O. Omega. So it's kratai a'o. And it is from a root that means to be uh, strong or to have power. So it has, it emphasizes on being strengthened in the inner man. How are you strengthened in the inner, inner man? It's through the power of God the Holy Spirit. We get this strength from the Spirit walking by the Spirit of God who fills us with the Word of God. And as we apply that in the process of spiritual growth, we are strengthened in our soul. It's the process also known as edification, where the soul becomes edified, it becomes built up, it becomes strong, so that it can withstand the assaults of the sin nature, the assaults of the world, and the assaults of the devil. The verb is in the passive voice, which indicates that we receive the action of the verb. It is to be strengthened, literally. We do not strengthen ourselves. It's not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps spirituality. So you don't go out and become spiritual simply by adopting some external code of conduct, some moral code, and then living up to it. See, anybody can do that. Any unbeliever can do that. You can have moral unbelievers. But you can't live the spiritual life that way because the spiritual life is a supernatural way of life that has a supernatural means of accomplishment. So we have the Holy Spirit. We have to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit becomes the source of our spiritual growth and our spiritual sustenance. So Paul says to watch, stand fast in the faith, be mature men, be strong. That is, be strong, be strengthened spiritually by means of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 14, he gives the fifth and final mandate here. Let all that you do be done in love. This takes us back to 1 Corinthians 13 where he interrupted his discussion of spiritual gifts in order to teach them what the, the uh, Corinthians what the real issue was. And that was living the spiritual life on the basis of genuine Christian love. And that comes in two aspects as we have studied in the past. There are two dimensions to the love that is talked about. So you have one word used here in the Greek, and that's the word agape. A-G-A-P-E. Now, agape is a different word from the Greek word philos. Now, philos indicates more of an intimate love. That's the difference between the two. In philos love, there is more of an intimacy between the person and the object of love. In agape, intimacy, or even a lack of intimacy, isn't necessarily in view. It's talking about the broad category of love. And how do we know what this is? It's not a feeling. It's not emotion. It's not sentiment. The definition for love is given in John 3.16. John 3.16. The first word in John 3.16 looks like this. In the Greek, hutos, H-O-U-T-O, long O, omega, S. And when you see this ending in Greek, that omega, S ending, that tells you that this word is an adverb. Same thing in English, except in English, the ending is L-Y. So when you see a word with an L-Y ending... It's an adverb, always, without exception. That means it modifies a verb. Adverb modifies a verb. So when you see this word in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, you know it's going to modify the main verb. Well, typical translation that you have in, in of John 3.16 is that uh, for, it starts off, For God so loved the world. Now, what does that mean, so loved? See, this is actually... The first word in the Greek text. So modifies love. Well, see, some people will translate that. God loved the world so much. But that's not what hutos means. Hutos can be translated in just a rough way as thusly or in this manner, in this way. And that's the idea. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the definition of love is given on the cross. 
This is where our understanding of love begins. It doesn't begin with our personal feelings because too often all your personal feelings do is get in the way. On the one hand, you can have personal feelings of, of anger or bitterness or resentment, and that gets in the way. On the other hand, you can get all caught up in some kind of sentimental emotionalism, and that gets in the way. You're a parent, and you need to love your children, which means you should discipline them. But you just can't quite bring yourself to, to uh, paddle little Johnny because he's just so cute. And, oh, he'll, he'll grow out of it. And so what happens is he doesn't learn respect for authority, and when he's 13 years old, you got real problems on your hand because you confuse your emotion with genuine love. And on the other hand, you get involved with people, and everybody gets involved with people, whether they're family or friends or co-workers, and somebody does something to you that really hurts, and now you struggle with bitterness, you struggle struggle with a reaction to that, and you find it difficult to be kind to them and to treat them in love and honor and respect simply because they have acted a certain way. Well, see, you don't understand the issues. The issue is that agape love, which is the basis for, for all love, has to be a love that is based on integrity. And I'll tell you one thing right now. Nobody has consistently has the kind of integrity that uh, would be necessary to have that kind of personal love. You have personal love over here, and that's directed towards people. Well, because people are sinners, people are minus integrity, all, some, or part of the time. And when those people act on an absence of integrity, especially when it's directed towards you, the result can be rejection, the the, the result can be uh, heartache, you can go through all kinds of uh, turmoil, and all of a sudden you want to say, well, I can't love them. Well, <clears throat> the integri- for, for personal love to be valid, the integrity that it's based on can't be located in the, in, the, in the person. It can't be located in your husband. It can't be located in your wife. It can't be located in your kids or your friends. For it to have real value, it's got to be located in the only place it can be located, and that is in God. This is why I often make the statement that we love others not because of who and what they are, but because of who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This becomes the foundation. And that then allows us that when these people are acting with minus integrity, we call this impersonal love for all mankind. And it's impersonal because it doesn't demand a necessarily a personal relationship. We, uh, it doesn't mean that it's, that it's some sort of mechanistic or mechanical thing. The term impersonal simply means that you can apply this to people you don't have a personal relationship with, to the, to the uh, uh, cashier at the checkout stand who can't figure out how to, how to add two plus two and get four, and you're in a hurry and have to be somewhere or to the the person who's driving down you know 164 at 35 miles an hour and you need to get somewhere and you can't pass anybody and you have to you're late for an appointment and and the speed limit's 45 so uh you know that's that you don't know that person but you have to treat them in the same kind of love that God the Father demonstrated to us on the cross 
So personal love is when there's that, a personal relationship. Impersonal love is when there's not an impersonal relationship. In either case, we have to deal with people who are dirty, rotten sinners, and sometimes they operate on their sin nature with a lack of integrity, and the only way we can fulfill the mandate to love one another as Christ loved the church is when we have our focus on the integrity of God and get our eyes off of people, get our eyes off of events, and put our eyes on God. When you put your eyes on people, you're always going to be disappointed, frustrated, out of fellowship, and you're going to be bouncing off all the emotional walls at one point or another simply because you got you have your focus on the wrong thing. Jesus gave a new commandment in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. I can just see a couple of those disciples kind of looking out of the corner of their eye at one another and say, wait, wait a minute. You love one another as I have loved you. See, that's the standard. It's not the standard that was given in the Old Testament to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's a new standard to love one another as Christ loved us. Well, how did he love us? Well, he went to the cross to die, on the, die for us and to pay the penalty for our sins. While we were in a state of rebellion... While we were obnoxious to him, he didn't do it because we were loving and kind and he was having a wonderful relationship with us. He went to the cross when you were at enmity with him. You were an enemy of God. You were hostile to him. You were in a state of rejection and animosity towards God. Nevertheless, he sent his son who died on the cross for us. That's what love is. And we're to love one another as Christ loved us. Verse 35, by this, he says, all will know that you are my disciples. A disciple is not equal to being a Christian. There are a lot of Christians who are saved who never get to this level of maturity in the Christian life. This doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes a lot of doctrine in the soul. It takes the practice and the application of doctrine over and over again to get this into application. Then again, he says, for the... A third time, notice he says in verse 34, love one another. Again, love one another. And now in 35, love one another. Three times he repeats it. Guess what? That's important. This is fundamental. So Paul reminds the Corinthians of this because this is a major problem for them. They're so caught up in, in themselves and their own arrogance and self-absorption and self-indulgence and self-justification, self-deception, and self-deification, that they can't have any love for one another. In carnality, you can't love. Not this way. This is only a fruit of the Spirit. For The fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. This is only produced by God the Holy Spirit through the uh, doctrine that's in your soul. So there's the mandate. Five mandates at the beginning of this section. Be alert, be vigilant in your spiritual life. Stand firm in doctrine. You have to know doctrine before you can stand firm in it. So that means you have to study the Word. You can't just stand firm in, in all that doctrinal statement I read when I joined the church. I, I, you know, I didn't have any problems with that. That seemed fine. You know, that, you can't do that. That's not going to work. Uh, be, be mature. Act as a mature believer. You know, you know your kids aren't mature. You know they're only 10 or 11 or 12 years of old. But what do you do? You say, act like an adult. 
Because the idea, the goal is to be, to learn to behave as a mature adult in life. Same thing in the spiritual life. That even though you may be a uh, two-year-old spiritual infant, what Paul says is act like an adult. You say that to your kids, or you ought to. Act like an adult because you are, you are teaching and training them. You are parenting them to be mature. You're not parenting them to act like a five-year-old. You want them to act like a mature adult. And you know that when they're five, they're not going to, to do that. But the reason you say that over and over again is you're setting the standard. You're telling them what the goal is, what the direction is, where the, what the model is, is to act like a mature adult. And then verse uh, 14 gives the fifth mandate, let all that you do be done by means of love. This demands maturity and growth. Then we come to verse 15. And from verse 15 down through verse 24, Paul gives his closing comments, many of which are personal comments to those in the congregation in Corinth. He says, I urge you, brethren you know, the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, he mentioned this same household at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He mentioned this family. They're not mentioned in Acts. Acts 18 gives us the background to how the church was founded in Corinth. But uh, uh, this household was one of the most important families in the church, and to understand the dynamics of what was going on in, in Corinth when Paul was initially there, you have to look back at the 18th chapter. And we're told that after he had gone to Athens, he went to Corinth, and there he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus. That was a region in Turkey, what is modern Turkey now, Asia Minor then, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So they had lived, they were Jews that were originally from uh, the, the area in Turkey, and they had been in, in Rome and had left Rome because of a, a persecution against the Jews there. And so now he was in, in Greece, and they were tent makers. Now this doesn't mean they're down there just making these little REI tents for backpacking. They're making major structures for the for the uh, caravanners, and also in 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 Greece and Corinth at this time when Paul was there, they were they would be preparing for the Olympics that were held in 51 A.D. And just as now, well, they didn't have so many this year, but they would they would have people come from all over Greece for those uh, Isthmian Games, and hundreds of people would come, and they would just. The, the accounts, the contemporary accounts from that time is that these people camp out in all the farmers' fields and, you know, they didn't have latrines and they didn't have showers and they didn't have a garbage collection. They would just trash an area for a couple of weeks uh, and then everybody would be glad that they left. But they had to live somewhere. And, and uh, all of the vendors that came with all of their wares, they had to uh, construct tents. So this was part of the, their, their business. And so Paul and Priscilla and Aquila went into business together and built these uh, structures for the uh, games at, at, um, at the Isthmus. So Paul, uh, at, when he was there, the first family that was converted were the family of uh, Stephanus. That it is the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia is the, prov- the southern part of Greece. 
that includes the Peloponnese. That it is the first fruits. He was one of the first families saved. And that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, here's an important word. What does it mean to be devoted to the ministry of the saints? The verb is the Greek verb tasso. T-A-S-S-O. And it's a present active, or it's an aorist active indicative. Aorist active indicative indicating, in this case, just a summary of a past action. But the word means to arrange or order something, to put something in order. And what they had done is they had arranged their life, their priorities, what they did in life, in order to make ministry and service to other people a priority. And specifically to those who were in ministry. So they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that is, to minister to others in the body of Christ, but all, but this also involved ministry to those who were in uh, professional Christian work. The apostles, the missionaries, the teachers, they made it a point that they were going to take care of the pastors and missionaries that came through the area. So this was a priority. They arranged their life to do that. So he says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have arranged their lives to make the ministry to the saints a priority. Verse 16, that you also submit to such. You know, don't be antagonistic to them, but help them, cooperate with them, be a part of their work. And to everyone who works and labors with us. In other words, Paul is telling the congregation that you need to submit to those who make ministry a priority. And everyone who comes with us, when, uh, when Timothy comes, when Apollos comes, when others who are working with us comes, other pastors and missionaries, you need to submit to them. Quit being so antagonistic and divisive, being hypercritical of everybody and everything that comes along, which just comes from a point of arrogance, where you're criticizing every pastor teacher that you that you listen to because he doesn't measure up in some minor way. Everybody has differences. I don't know any two pastors out there that agree on everything. If we did, one one of us would be redundant. Verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. See, these three were the ones who brought the letter and the questions from the Corinthians. And they also brought a gift. And he says, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. Their grace orientation towards Paul made up for the antagonism and the problem that the rest of the congregation uh, brought to Paul. Then verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. These were mature believers who came. And he says, therefore, acknowledge such men. You need to have a positive attitude towards these men. Uh, congregations need to do what they can for those who are living their life in full uh, professional uh, service because they have uh, given up certain things in their life because of their devotion to the Lord. So we need to make sure we honor these men when missionaries come through, when other pastors visit. They need to be honored and, and uh, taken care of. Verse 19, then Paul closes by saying the churches of Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia on the western coast of Turkey, the churches of Asia greet you. 
Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. See, Aquila and Priscilla had been with him in Corinth, but now they are in Ephesus with Paul when he writes this letter. And they are greeting, they send greetings along with the church that is in their house. So there was a group of believers who met consistently in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. In verse 20, all the brethren greet you. Everyone in the church sends you greetings. Uh, and then greet one another with a holy kiss. And the point there is not the greeting with a kiss, but that was a common thing to, to uh, some, as they say down south, press cheeks. Um, greet one another with a holy kiss, not a lascivious kiss. We're not talking about uh, a kiss that would stimulate uh, physical lust. This would be a very discreet uh, type of kiss on the cheek. Greet one another with a holy kiss instead of a lascivious kiss. And certainly the Corinthians had a problem with lasciviousness. And then finally, um, he closes in verse 20, 21 and 22, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. In other words, most of the letter was probably written by his amanuensis, his secretary, someone who wrote down for him. But he writes the end by his own hand, and making his own final comments. Verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Anathema. This is the same kind of thing he says over in Galatians uh, 1, 5, and 6, that if anyone teaches another gospel, let them be accursed. The, the priority is to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he closes with the Greek word maranatha. Maranatha, which means Lord come. And it is an anticipation of the rapture and the Lord coming. So when you see people use that word Maranatha, that's where it comes from. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So in these last two verses, he closes out by putting the emphasis where it belongs, which is on the Lord Jesus Christ. We live the Christian life on the basis of grace. Grace is a basis of salvation. It's also the basis for the spiritual life. And then he reminds them again of his love for them. As a good pastor, he loves them, and he shows that by teaching them the Word, by correcting their flaws, by pointing out their failures, and also positively giving them instruction on how to live the Christian life. Well, with that, we finish our study of 1 Corinthians, and then next Sunday morning we will begin a new uh, short series dealing with the truth of God's Word. How do we know we can trust the Bible? This is a big challenge today with coming from all sorts of quarters that... Uh, uh, how do we know that we can really trust the Bible? How do we know that this is the Bible? Maybe there were other books that we ought to include. Why not? Why these and why not others? So we'll look at canonicity. We'll look at the origin of the Bible, how we got the Bible. We'll even look at how we got the English Bible that we have, the history of the English Bible. Okay, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to to be reminded of these key priorities in the Christian life, to be watchful, to be alert, be diligent, to be strong, to act as mature believers, to walk in love and demonstrate uh, your love in our life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, 
that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone, to trust in him, that he died for your sins, and that the penalty for sin is eternal condemnation. Not your sin, but Adam's original sin, which you inherited. Therefore, we're born condemned. The only solution, therefore, is to trust in Jesus Christ. And right where you sit, you can make that a reality, at which point you receive eternal salvation, which can never, ever be lost. It doesn't depend on you to gain it, and it doesn't depend on you to keep it. Jesus Christ gives it as a free gift, and it is ours forever. Now, Father, we pray that you would keep us mindful of the things that we have studied today, that we would respond positively to their challenge. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.